You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 12th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Our recent two-part interview with Carbon Brief's Simon Evans in episodes 142 and 143 was one of our most popular yet, with many of our listeners responding to my invitation to email me with their feedback and reactions. My sincere thanks to all of you who did. One thing that became clear from those responses is that our listeners are paying close attention to the nascent hydrogen economy 2.0 wave and realizing that it encompasses a wide range of applications and projects, from those that could actually be an important part of the solutions to climate change to those that would only make it worse because they still produce carbon emissions. And many of our listeners expressed interest in hearing more about commercial efforts to advance hydrogen solutions. So, after giving you all a bit of a break from the topic of hydrogen, we thought we would do one more episode on it to really round out our coverage of this incredibly complex and expansive sector, and focus in on some of the recent innovations and projects that aim to expand hydrogen production and bring down its costs, as well as some potential applications for hydrogen, and to try to identify where it may have any clear advantages over other technologies. Because there are significant projects underway, especially in Europe and the Middle East, to expand green hydrogen production capacity, as well as projects that aim to deploy hydrogen in everything from shipping to power generation. There are obviously a lot of these projects to track, so to help us understand what's happening out there, I turn to Gnevomir Flies, a senior hydrogen advisor at Agora Energiewende, the German energy transition think tank. You may recall that we spoke with the director of Agora Energiewende, Patrick Reichen, in episode 83. Gnevomir is a keen observer of the hydrogen sector who seeks to understand its potential as a tool for reaching net zero. Previously, Gnevomir was a senior hydrogen analyst at Aurora Energy Research and the content lead behind the Terra.do New Hydrogen Economy course. He was also an analyst to Michael Liebreich, founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, who you'll recall from episode 85. So I was very pleased that Gnevomir was willing to come on the show and share his latest observations about the hydrogen sector. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll note a new milestone in the European Union's energy transition. We'll salute a new world record low price for solar. We'll update the declining cost of wind. We'll take a look at a draft executive order from President Biden to assess climate risk across the U.S. federal government. And we'll see how the three largest U.S. banks are reorienting their investments into energy transition and sustainability. And now our conversation with Gnevomir Flies, recorded March 19th, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Gnevomir, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, it's great to be here. I think I'd like to start with some recent innovations and projects that aim to expand hydrogen production and bring down its costs and see what kind of production capacity we can expect. And then I think we should take a look at some potential applications for hydrogen and try to identify where it has any clear advantages over other technologies. Sound good? Sounds great. Let's get into it. 
Okay, so let's start with a little context. European policymakers in particular seem more interested than most in transitioning various energy demands to hydrogen, certainly more interested than U.S. policymakers are. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are two elements going on here. And the first one is ambition. I believe that the EU really wants to position itself as a climate leader. And this is especially important in the context of what happened in the U.S. over the past four years and how the U.S., left the Paris Agreement and now rejoined, but these four years sort of left a vacuum where I think the EU leaders actually saw an opportunity to become a global leader in something, because arguably (laughs) Europe hasn't been seen as a global leader for some time now, sort of more so like a little brother to the US. So this is definitely to be welcomed. And I think the reason that Europe and European leaders are looking at hydrogen is because It's this hot new thing, but it is actually a very versatile molecule that will be an essential part of our journey to net zero. And arguably, there is no climate leadership without hydrogen. So on one hand, we have this ambition to become a climate leader, which is why European leaders are pursuing this. But on the other hand, we also have a more pragmatic approach to this whole issue of hydrogen. And to set this into context, Europe has been classically an energy importer. And it will continue, possibly, to become an energy importer, but this statement hides some nuances. So it is possible to produce hydrogen in Europe, and some places in Europe can produce more hydrogen than others. And within Europe, we will see regions that will actually have excess hydrogen, and other places will have a deficit of hydrogen. But this deficit of hydrogen, it is projected to occur in the industrial heartlands, and especially in the industrial heartland at the crossroads of Belgium, Netherlands, and Western Germany. So very much the issue of hydrogen is also the issue of securing energy supply in the long term. So it's seen as a way of basically greening up its energy supply, even as it has to continue being an energy importer. Yes, correct. Okay. Well, as we discussed with Simon Evans in our two-part interview with him in episodes 142 and 143 about the potential for what I've been calling the hydrogen economy 2.0, there are many ways to produce hydrogen, but many of them still produce carbon emissions. So they can't really be considered climate solutions or appropriate pathways for energy transition. Is electrolysis of water using wind and solar seen as the main method by which we'll be producing green hydrogen? The European hydrogen strategy is quite explicit in saying that only hydrogen produced from renewable sources is sustainable in the long run. But the European hydrogen strategy isn't prescriptive really in the short term, and the wording gives a bit of leeway as to which technology might be used in the short to medium term. Now, to answer this question, we at Agora Energivenda have recently come up with a study called No Regrets Hydrogen. We released this study in February, and in this study, we looked at supply options. We established two scenarios, and one of these scenarios looked at the competition between blue hydrogen, so hydrogen from gas reforming with carbon capture and storage. We've also taken pyrolysis into account there. And we have also established a second scenario, which we call the green scenario, where we assumed much more drastic cost declines for electrolyzers. And what we've seen in these both scenarios is that in the long run, after 2030, the most economical supply option for hydrogen would be effectively renewable hydrogen. 
At the same time, in our scenario where we enabled blue hydrogen, we saw that this hydrogen may play a role, especially in countries such as Norway. It's not deterministic, of course, but it may play a role in countries such as the UK, such as Norway, and such as the Netherlands, which have good access to carbon storage facilities. These, of course, have to be developed. But one of the main takeaways of that study was that in the best of cases, blue hydrogen only remains investable until 2030s. After that, the massive expected rollout of renewables, and especially if policy focuses on the deployment of green hydrogen, there is no investment case for blue hydrogen after 2030. And that's being optimistic about blue hydrogen. So I suppose the answer is yes, the only form of hydrogen that's viable on large scale in the long run is green hydrogen. I mean, I guess in my mind that raises another question, which is what's more likely to happen first? Are we going to develop all the capacity to generate all this green hydrogen? Or are we going to develop the carbon capture and sequestration <laughs> facilities that would be needed to support blue hydrogen? Because I don't think that really exists yet either. No, no, neither of these really exist. And this is the main problem, really, that there isn't enough renewable capacity to support as much green hydrogen as we'd ideally like to have. And at the same time, there isn't any carbon capture and storage infrastructure to support blue hydrogen either. Okay. Well, I'm not crazy then. <laughs> <laughs> so is water availability a concern at all here? I mean, producing hydrogen using electrolysis requires a decent amount of water. And I think it has to be fresh or at least desalinated water, right? So is the cost or availability of water a significant barrier in scaling up hydrogen production as well, especially in desert climates like Saudi Arabia or northern Chile, where some people expect to become significant hydrogen producers and exporters? On a global scale, water availability, it shouldn't be a problem. Of course, there will be local cases where water-constrained regions where the lack of ability fresh water, it will add to the cost of producing hydrogen. So desalinated water is required to run the electrolysis process smoothly. Such desalination can add $0.2 to the price of a kilogram of hydrogen. And at the moment, if you think about it, if we're talking about best-in-class renewable hydrogen projects, that would be maybe 10%, maybe 5%, maybe of the overall price. Mm. But as we look into the future, as we look towards uh, scaling green hydrogen, as we look towards really achieving that price of $1 per kilogram, then $0.2 per kilogram that goes to desalination is already 20% of your cost base. So some of these places that actually seem ideal today for the production of hydrogen, there might be actually volume constraint in the long run, hmm. which is why I often say that local hydrogen production, leveraging the best local resources, can sometimes be preferable than shifting hydrogen from halfway across the world where it's produced from water in a desert environment. Yeah, not to mention the shipping cost, which as we discussed with Simon, he said, as I recall, the shipping cost could be almost equivalent to the cost of producing the hydrogen to begin with. Absolutely. Depending on where it's coming from and where it's going to. All right, well, let's talk about some of the innovations you've been tracking in the hydrogen sector, because I know you think some of them are pretty exciting. One sector that seems particularly keen on hydrogen is the maritime sector, where hydrogen is seen as both a potential fuel for shipping and as a new commodity that will bring a lot of business in through 
shipping through European ports. Hydrogen can be used as a potential shipping fuel in several different forms. It can be chilled until it becomes a liquid, it can be compressed, and it can be converted into synthetic liquid fuels like ammonia and methanol. But as we've discussed in our previous episodes on hydrogen, just because these things are technically possible doesn't mean necessarily that they'll be economically competitive with the alternatives or that global supply chains can actually deliver the needed amounts of green hydrogen, that is, the hydrogen produced, again, from renewable sources like wind and solar. So let's talk about this. What is the case for hydrogen-based shipping fuels in Europe? So there are two things to unpack here. One of them is how do you transport hydrogen? How do you get hydrogen into Europe if you don't have a pipeline infrastructure? That's one thing. But the second thing, which you also mentioned, is the hydrogen in the maritime sector. And that really excites me. And (laughs) the funny thing is, I don't think hydrogen in the maritime sector is close to being economically viable, but that is exactly why governments should be pursuing it. And by pursuing hydrogen in the maritime sector, I believe that governments can unlock, can not only decarbonize the shipping sector, which is responsible for 2.5% of global emissions, but pursuing hydrogen for the maritime sector has important co-benefits for all the infrastructure, for all the sector coupling that you can achieve by introducing hydrogen infrastructure at ports. To give you an example of the scale of the challenge, Bloomberg New Energy Finance in their 2020 hydrogen outlook report put the carbon cost or the carbon gap of decarbonizing shipping at $160 per ton. And that's on top of having hydrogen at $1 per kilogram. That's a massive gap. That's actually one of the hardest sectors to decarbonize. But once you start getting this infrastructure at ports, the bunkering infrastructure, the storage infrastructure, you start enabling the imports and exports of of hydrogen or hydrogen-derived fuels. And that is super exciting because now you can start distributing them to other applications which have a much higher willingness to pay. Something I'd like to add to that is that shipping is a no-regret sector. Even though it's far from being economical, it is clear that in the long run, deep-sea shipping doesn't really have any other options than hydrogen or hydrogen-based ammonia or maybe even hydrogen-based methanol. That's all still up for grabs, but it seems like ammonia is the clear favorite here. But there are early opportunities, and we have the ICCT, for example, in the recent research, has identified corridors between the US and China, and they said that 43% of 2015 voyages could be completed with no changes to the journey alone, only equipment change at the level of the vessel. And this equipment change at the level of the vessel would only replace 5% of cargo space for more hydrogen fuel. Hmm. Just 5% of cargo space. Okay, so basically just retrofit the engine to run on hydrogen. You're going to have to give up 5% of your cargo space to allow for more fuel storage, and it works. You can do almost half of 2015 voyages across the Pacific with no other changes. Was that using methanol or ammonia or compressed hydrogen? This one was liquid hydrogen. Okay. And is that just burning the hydrogen, or are they putting it through a fuel cell or what? I think it's using fuel cells. 
Okay. This is actually a really important point because these fuel cells would be massive. We're talking about megawatt scale fuel cells. Yeah. And one of the cool things about scaling up electrolyzer and fuel cell systems is that you do get benefits from scaling up the stacks into megawatt sizes. That's another way to drive the cost curve down. It's not just zero manufacturing. It's also manufacturing at scale, if you know what I mean. Right. You know, I was thinking about the energy density aspect as well. I mean, a key limitation to hydrogen use in shipping is its low volumetric energy density, unless, of course, it is compressed or liquefied or turned into a liquid fuel. And so that means that ships can travel less distance, essentially, for a given fuel tank size, or as we were just talking about, you're going to have to give up some cargo space to make room for more fuel. And the Pearl River Delta to San Pedro Bay route, which is basically what you have when you're going between China and the ports of San Diego and Long Beach, is particularly challenging because it involves these long distances at sea with very few refueling opportunities. So if hydrogen can actually work for that circuit, it's likely viable in many other corridors. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, what kinds of efforts are underway to enable this vision? So the Global Maritime Forum has listed just recently over 121 maritime projects in this field. Wow. Yeah, and that includes quite a broad list because it includes ship-level projects, but also projects that talk about fuel supply. And what's interesting about this is that we have about 70 projects in Europe, about 30 in China, and the rest of them scattered around the world. But this report really underlines the focus of European industry, of European shipping industry, of European players. So to illustrate the sort of projects around the world, in Belgium, we have the Hydrogen Import Coalition, which counts in itself Port of Antwerp, Port of Zeebrugge, but also industrial players such as Engie and Fluxus. A bit further to the east, we have projects in the Netherlands, which is the North Sea hub. Within that, we have Port of Ghent and also Port of Rotterdam. And this is really exciting because Port of Rotterdam, just a few days ago, signed a memorandum of understanding with the government of Chile to import green hydrogen. So we're seeing a lot of activity in the ports. And even further to the northeast, we're seeing activity in Norwegian ports where we have partnerships between Yara, a fertilizer producer, Statcraft and Statcraft and Acker Horizons. And they are hoping to green their ammonia production and use some of that ammonia production to fuel shipping. Well, I suppose it makes sense that the big energy companies and ports who will stand to benefit from a pivot to hydrogen shipping and consumption would back it. I mean, this hydrogen import coalition that you mentioned is basically a bunch of industrial players and ports, right? Mm -hmm. And even in their study, they acknowledge that the carbon prices would be necessary in order to level the playing field for green hydrogen against other forms of producing hydrogen that emit carbon. In theory, I could see that working within Europe because it has that emissions trading system or ETS. But is that system currently set up to require dirty hydrogen producers to buy emissions allowances? And are those current emission allowance prices in Europe high enough to level the playing field between green and other forms of hydrogen production within Europe? Or is there still more work to be done there to put green hydrogen on a truly competitive footing? Well, as with the EU ETS, there's always an asterisk to it. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In 2020, for the first time ever, the European Union generated more power from renewables than from fossil fuels, with renewables providing 39% of electricity while fossil fuels provided 36%. Coal and lignite generation fell by 22% in 2020, nuclear output dropped by 11%, while gas use dropped by about 3%. As a result, the carbon footprint of the power sector in the EU dropped by 14% in 2020. The European Commission cautions that the COVID-19 pandemic was a big part of the reason for the reduced demand for fossil-fueled electricity, as was the mild winter of 2020, and therefore the changes may not be enduring. However, 29 gigawatts of new solar and wind capacity was added in 2020, comparable to 2019 levels, while more and more early coal retirements have been announced. Not only was renewable deployment strong in the EU in 2020, demand for electric vehicles was as well, with almost half a million new EVs registered across the EU, the highest sales figure yet, indicating an unprecedented 17% market share as compared with about a 2.8% market share in the U.S. Item 2. Saudi Arabia has notched another world record low price for solar. Announcing that it had signed power purchase agreements for seven large-scale solar projects, including about 1.8 gigawatts of new projects, the kingdom said that some 60 bidders had submitted bids to the Ministry of Energy in round two of the procurement. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.